We've come a long way, baby, and we've made it to the end of the first season of Golden Girls. To celebrate the occasion, the ladies are walking us through the memories they share surrounding how they met and became roommates. So let's hop in our DeLoreans, go back in time to see what brought our favorite ladies together, what obnoxious piece of meat almost tore them apart, and why you shouldn't watch Psycho before bed. All of that and more in today's episode, The Way We Met. Thank you for the friendship We've come so far and traveled wide You're my best friends I could never lie I love when we party, dance and sing And laugh just doing our thing No matter the misters that come Memories. They light the corner of our minds. Misty, watercolored memories of the way we met. Scattered pictures. Okay, okay, enough play on the title of this episode and the 1973 Barbara Streisand Robert Redford movie, The Way We Were. Today we're introduced to the first of what will be many clip shows from The Golden Girls. In making this show, which has me dissecting the series as a whole, I've found that maybe it isn't that each episode is so outstanding that that's why we still love it after all this time, but it's the clip shows that led us to the jokes and moments that were funniest, being ingrained in our minds, making us love and appreciate just how clever the series is. It's a moon over Miami kind of night as we start in tight on the kitchen door only to see a pink silk robe clad rose sneaking in. She is soon followed by Dorothy in her black and blue checkered robe who turns on the light terrifying rose. Dorothy apologizes, but in her special sarcastic way of showing that she didn't really need to say sorry since all she did was go into a dark room and turn on a light like a normal person. So she tells Rose that next time she'll have a mariachi band go ahead of her with singers, guitars, bass, horns, strings. Yeah, a mariachi band would definitely make enough noise to warn anyone in the neighborhood. Inquiring as to why Rose is even up so late, she says it's because she heard the scary, strange noise of someone walking slowly up creaky stairs. But the house doesn't have stairs, Dorothy points out. Duh, that's why the sound is so scary. Dorothy's up for a similar reason. She thought she heard someone prowling outside her window, but it was just a neighborhood cat humping their plastic flamingo. I never really took the ladies as plastic flamingo havers. Seems like something so Miami that Blanche wouldn't allow it in or near her home. Hearing all the screaming from the ladies scaring each other in the kitchen, Blanche arrives in her colorful flowing robe with a golf club in hand. The ladies are clearly all on edge. They're up late, jumpy. Then we learn why. They had spent their evening watching Alfred Hitchcock's beyond iconic thriller, Psycho, with Anthony Perkins playing the titular madman, Norman Bates. For being so tough and realistic, Dorothy is surprisingly uncool about horror. She even chose to go to her mother-in-law's for dinner when Stan went to see it in the theater those 26 years before. 
Blanche agrees. The famously gruesome shower scene starring Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Lee, was so upsetting, it's the reason Blanche doesn't like to shower alone. And yeah, Dorothy, those bears were mean and dangerous, so maybe Goldilocks is why Blanche doesn't want to sleep alone either. It's not, but I thought I'd try. Celebrating that, even though they're up in the middle of the night and frightened, they have each other, Rose ups the happy ante by pointing out she has a double chocolate fudge cheesecake in the freezer. When getting the silverware for said cheesecake, Blanche explains she never had fun like this with her other roommates, the two older women she lived with before Rose and Dorothy moved in. They were eccentric, they took baths together, and they flossed each other's teeth. I think I hope they were in a romantic relationship because that's just too much intimacy for me. Even if they were married, that's too much intimacy. Also, the idea of someone else flossing my teeth besides a dental hygienist sounds painful more than anything. That was very disturbing when that came, that yes. came out of her mouth. That is, that is so gross. And that's she's like... very casual about it. I'd be like, I need them to go. This is not... This is a that would be boundary for me. That would be like an image you would see toward the end of The Shining, the movie The Shining. Oh my god! When she keeps seeing all these weird ghosts doing weird crap, and the... another curtain moves, and it's the two girls in the tub. and they're flossing each other, <laughs> but they're dead. Oh my god! For real? Yeah, she sees the old lady in the tub. She sees the beaver monster man in the bedroom, and then she sees two Minnesotan women in a bathtub flossing each other's teeth. It's the stuff of nightmares. Also, I like that they take this opportunity to kind of shuffle everyone around because when the scene starts, Rose is sitting at the seat that's closest to the oven. And then when they get the silverware and the cheesecake and everyone kind of moves, Blanche then takes her spot, which kind of becomes her normal spot, which is that same one by the oven. So I don't know if they all just sat down and didn't really think about it and that's why they moved or it was just planned. But I liked that moment. Blanche doesn't explain exactly why, but one day she kicked the flossers out, and that same afternoon, she met Rose. I always love the clip shows the Golden Girls did. I know it was a cheap way of getting an episode out, but they were kind of like greatest hits albums. Additionally, I love that as a season finale, the writers wanted to tell the story of how the girls ended up living together, and they did it in such a fun storytelling way via flashbacks. So this kind of is their first clip show. Without roommates, Blanche went to the grocery store to put a flyer up on the bulletin board for a room for rent. Think of it as a tangible Craigslist, and Exhibit A in Why Serial Killers Were So Prolific in the 80s. Wearing flowing white pants, a white version of her yellow purse, and a large floral-patterned coral blouse with shoulder pads reaching to the gods, Blanche placed her flyer on the board. Just then, Rose walked up in a cyan dress with a matching gray belt and purse. Her surprise accessory, especially in a dang grocery store, is that she's holding a cat. <coughs> Upon seeing Rose, Blanche asks if she's okay. Rose says she is, but Blanche knows better. She can read the emotions all over her face. It is clear that Rose has been dumped and is bummed about it. Blanche takes a page out of the late, famously provocative comedian Lenny Bruce's book by explaining men will do it in the mud and the only solution is to sleep with the guy's best friend. With a look of disbelief, Rose peers around the store before asking, Am I on candid camera? Candid Camera actually started as a radio show in the 1940s before becoming the television show we all knew. It's too lucky. Yes, my 
using hidden cameras and silly situations to prank people before saying, smile, you're on candid camera. Basically, candid camera walked so impractical jokers could run. It's just the three of us, right? Okay, well, here's the deal. Who did the fart? <laughs> Rose is right to question her interaction with Blanche. Here's this stranger saying she should sleep with a boyfriend's friend before she can even tell her what's actually going on. And what's actually going on is that Rose was evicted by her landlord because new owners took over her building and they wouldn't let her keep her cat, Mr. Peepers. And while she appreciated Blanche's idea, she couldn't bring herself to sleep with the guy or maybe it was his friend. She wasn't super clear about it. But either way, it was because one of the guys was in their 80s and thought they were Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, about Mr. Peepers. I know Rose, well, Betty for that matter, is a huge animal lover. But when she drops the bomb that she's willing to get kicked out of her house because of a cat she found just days ago, that's kind of not healthy. But Blanche doesn't see Rose's willingness to be homeless with a cat as a red flag surrounding her decision-making. Quite the opposite. She sees it as a sign of Rose's compassion and strong character. Perhaps she's too loyal, which a narcissist like Blanche would of course be drawn to. So in that moment, Blanche decides to offer her room to Rose. And in doing so, she kind of blurs the line between introduction and offer, leading Rose to ask, why would you name a room Blanche Devereaux? Again, Blanche doesn't see Rose's stupidity as a red flag. She just thinks she's witty. This is when we learn that the eccentrics who flossed one another were also from Minnesota. When Rose confesses she too is a Minnesotan, Blanche laughs it off. But Rose assures her she is not some lame stick in the mud. She can party. She can get wild. She's so hardcore, she eats raw cookie dough. And I'm with you, Rose. Raw cookie dough is one of my favorite things. I know, I know. Raw eggs, flour, bacteria, death. I know. But you know what? If people can drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes, I can treat myself to some edgy snacking. Coco, where do you fall on the cocoa dough argument? I love cookie dough, but I hate the danger. <laughs> and for that reason, I no longer eat it from a, you know, a packaged cookie dough. I'll eat like one that is a vegan cookie dough or that is... What if it's freshly made? What if I just made cookie dough? Is there an egg in it? Yeah. I just feel very nervous about that for some reason. Isn't Is that, that part of the thrill? No, I don't want salmonella poisoning. Poisoning. <laughs> I don't want salmonella poisoning from the joy of eating a cookie dough cookie raw. Thank you. Coward. Yeah. When Blanche hears the cookie dough news, followed by Rose's wild streak of running through the sprinkler, hair uncovered, and having more than one eggnog at Christmas, she realizes there might be something about those Minnesota girls that just doesn't click with her, and she hangs her notice back on the board. Blanche assures Rose, you're nice and all, but we just don't have anything in common. With a rub of the arm and a pat to Mr. Peeper's head, Blanche excuses herself. Just then, a young boy approaches Rose and asks to pet the cat. This kid knows how to work the guilt, pointing out that he had a cat, Harpo, that looked just like Mr. Peepers, but he had died. Showing that Rose might have the mental capacity of the eight-year-old she's speaking with, she asks this kid if his mom would let him have a cat. Sure, he says. In fact, she was actually going to get him one next week. How convenient. 
So by making this young child promise to take good care of Mr. Peepers, who the kid wants to call Harpo, the name of his dead cat, Rose then does the unthinkable, unless you hate the child's parents. She gives the kid her cat. Straight up just hands him a full-ass cat. And he just takes it and calls out for his mom. How did the cat die, kiddo? Are you some sort of psycho yourself? Did your mom already have plans for another cat? Was she ill-prepared for this sudden expense? And Rose, if you don't have Mr. Peepers anymore, you don't have to move. That's why it's kind of odd that not only has Blanche been spying on the whole cat exchange, but she again offers the room to Rose. And Rose, who now is catless and therefore doesn't have to move, is still excited to go see the Blanche Devereaux room, even though she doesn't know Blanche's name is Blanche. Hello, stranger danger. Rewinding just a little bit, let's talk about that little kid. Maybe you know him only from Golden Girls or perhaps from his multi-million dollar investment agency. It's possible you also recognize him from his guest spots on shows like Cheers, Newhart, The Tracy Ullman Show, Married with Children, or Empty Nest. Even if you don't recognize Eden Gross's face or name, you might know his voice. He not only got to be Flounder on the TV version of The Little Mermaid, he had multiple appearances on one of my all-time favorite shows, Rin and Stimpy. But most famously, his voice has haunted your dreams as Chucky from the original Child's Play series. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? In the sitcom-timed world of this episode, it has been the same day that Blanche kicked out her co-bathing roomies. She has also made flyers, hosted tours, and eventually found Rose. It's been busy. In telling Rose that, even though she was obviously as dumb as a sack of rocks, but she was glad to have met her because the people before her were even worse, Blanche really is the queen of the backhanded compliment. For her flashback within a flashback, Blanche takes us to the time when she was showing the house for other potential housemates. Walking through the unused fireplace land of the living room, we are introduced to Madame Zelda, who is Zeldaing more than anyone has Zeldaed before. With her red hair, overblushed cheeks, large beaded and dangling necklaces, purple blouse with a green scarf shoulder thing and a pink skirt, it's pretty clear right away that this lady is nuttier than a payday bar. And I can't help but think that the writers were inspired by Mad Madam Mim from Disney's Sword in the Stone, not only in regards to the Madam moniker, but the outfit and color scheme as well. Making it to the end of the tour and clearly desperate to get this woman out of her house, Blanche asks old Zeld if she has any questions. She does have one. Was a nurse murdered with a handsaw in this house? Blanche is not only shocked, but fairly appalled at the question. Mim continues with the details about the uniform and a man being hunched over a nurse who is writhing, which all rings a bell for Blanche, as that was clearly her and her current lover having some French-made outfit role-playing fun. In warning Blanche to get out of the house, Zelda tells her it's possessed. She means by a ghost or spirit, but Blanche takes it literally and says, yeah, it is, by my bank, and at 7%, you're not getting me out of here. I wonder how she would have felt about today's 2.5%. I know I love to give you guys information about all things, but math is not one of them, so we're done here. The long and the short of it is, ghost or not, this house is just too good of a deal. 
Opening the door to see Zelda out and to answer the doorbell, Blanche is delighted to find a lilac and yellow blouse Dorothy standing alongside a green and white striped dress wearing Sophia. Coco, what was it you said Sophia's dress looked like? A kitchen washcloth. That's right. Yes, that's a perfect explanation. Thank you. Walking into the house, they are lucky enough to encounter Madame Zelda, who doesn't bother with pleasantries. Instead, she begs for them to heed her warning. Move into this house and you'll die an agonizing death. Dorothy gives us a classic look of hers. Without even making eye contact or a confused, frightened face, Dorothy seems to almost be ignoring someone who farted by just staring away in hopes the person would disappear. It gets an appropriate response from the audience. Before we say goodbye to Madame Zelda, let's say hello to Shirley Prestia, the actress who played her. Acting just shy of 30 years before her passing in 2011, Shirley had more than 80 credits. Unlike most of our guest actors who had careers through the 50s to 80s, Shirley brings some newer roles to our list with gigs on shows like Ally McBeal, Dharma and Greg, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Practice, and Charmed. Of course, she had roles through the 80s and 90s, getting spots on ER, Frasier, Fame, Benson, St. Elsewhere, Facts of Life, Married with Children, and of course, Lala. Let's not forget, she was also in one of Coco's favorite films, Species, as Victoria Roth. I do not recall who that character is. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a pretty good chance an alien tongue shoots through the back of her skull at some point. Oh, if probably. we're talking about species. Yeah, that probably definitely happened. And to also her. there would be some nudity on screen at the same time. <laughs> Great movie. Ben Kingsley, Oscar winner. In an outfit we don't see much of, Blanche is wearing a navy blue blouse with a black plant print that looks like a big daddy business jacket she wore as a child, along with matching white undershirt and white pants. She asks the ladies to join her in the living room for a chat. Dorothy is on her best behavior, so when Blanche asks if the two ladies are planning on both living there by saying, are you taking both rooms, which is a little bit of a plot whoopsie, perhaps, because there are three rooms to rent. Anyway, as Dorothy explains it would be just her living there because her mother is at the Shady Pines retirement home, Blanche excitedly begins to comment, oh, of course I've heard of the wonderful Shady Pines, but the fanfare doesn't last long before Sophia crushes their fantasy. Shady Pines? Yeah, that place is a prison. She goes on to explain that she and her friends get locked into a room. They're made to look like they're having a blast so they can take good pictures for their brochures. Dorothy gives a smile of embarrassment before reaching out in what appears to be a loving, please shut up now way, before her fingers turn into her iconic talons, reaching out to her ma's arm in the most threatening of ways. Luckily for all of us, Sophia's condition from the pilot has changed. Yes, she had a stroke, but instead of her now having a comical disorder where she has no internal monologue and just says whatever's on her mind, she's more like a little bit confused. Deciding to move ahead with the tour, Blanche starts walking towards the lanai door. As Dorothy stands, she looks around, commenting on how beautiful the house is. Basically yelling is Sophia saying, really? You said it looked like a dump from outside. This moment provides the first of many of one of my favorite Golden Girls jokes, the grabbing of Sophia's mouth. As someone who is nearly a foot, okay, only like seven inches, taller than my own sassy-mouthed mother, I can relate on the deepest level. There's something so funny about the role reversal of the mother being the one out of control and the kid having to shush her. 
Starting outside, Blanche shows off the beautiful lanai and shares it's a wonderful spot to sunbathe topless. Dorothy assumes that's her way of explaining it's a private area, but that obviously isn't the case with Blanche. Of course the neighbors can see in. Dorothy's face and Sophia's words let you know that they've got Blanche's number already, that she has slut written into her underwear. Needing to get a move on and to her next appointment, Blanche doesn't bother showing Dorothy her potential living space. Instead, she jumps straight ahead to the questions on the application, starting, of course, with the most important. What do you call someone who's from Guam? I actually learned a word for this on Jeopardy the other day. It's called a demonym. Fun fact, in a sentence it would be used, Blanche asked Dorothy for the demonym of someone from Guam. And Dorothy is correct. It's Guamanian. That, of course, was only a question for Blanche's crossword, not the rental application. Moving on to the actual interview, Blanche inquires if Dorothy is a neat person. She, of course, claims to be, but there to ruin it is Sophia. Sure, you're neat and I wear a size D cup. Sophia isn't exactly large-chested, so yeah, maybe Dorothy isn't the neatest. But that's okay. My name is Alicia, and I am not a neat liver. And that's okay. Also, I love in this scene how Blanche is really sizing up Sophia's chest after she says that. I really love how this flashback starts as being part of Blanche's story, but ends with Dorothy sharing her side of the memory. That because of her ma's big mouth, there was no way she thought she was going to get that room. But lucky for her, the other options were so bad that she did get it. It's moving day and Dorothy is rocking my favorite look for her. Casual Sunday afternoon 80s dad. Jeans and a yellow sweatshirt. Dragging her items into the house, Rose comes through the back hallway wearing a spring explosion of a dress covered in pink and blue flowers and is cheerfully celebrating the weather and her mood. Her attitude of gratitude isn't contagious, though. As introductions commence, Dorothy assumes Rose must be Mrs. Rogers. This is in reference to Mr. Rogers, the host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was a children's television show that you have definitely heard of, so I'm going to move on. He, too, was all sunshine and rainbows, the same vibe Rose is giving as she places flowers in a vase. Rose doesn't get the joke as she starts to list off all the Mrs. Rogers she's known in life, a co-worker, a neighbor. Then, of course, there's Dale Evans, the most famous of Mrs. Rogers. Dale Evans was a singer, songwriter, and actress that famously wed the country star Roy Rogers. During the heydays of Hollywood, Roy Rogers was one of the top money earners and top performers in Western movies and country music. When they got together, it was the third marriage for Roy and fourth for Dale, but it worked. They sang together, starred in movies together, and even had a TV show together. When one of their children died from complications from Down syndrome, she became an advocate for changing how people viewed those with disabilities. Her most famous song might be the theme song that she and her beloved husband sang together on their show. Back to meeting each other. Rose extends her sympathies to Dorothy. She's sorry to hear that her husband left her, but she can use her bathtub in her room whenever she's feeling down. Dorothy appreciates the offer, with a pinch of sarcasm, of course. Blanche comes into the living room from the kitchen, wearing more of a sporty outfit. She's wearing white pants and a teal-collared shirt that looks like a less hot version of a half-zip fleece. She's glad to see that they've met each other, but the first bump in the road happens when Dorothy asks which room she's going to. With her own whoopsies, Blanche acknowledges that she told the girls they could each have the same room. 
While Rose suggests they solve the dilemma the old St. Olafian way by log rolling, Dorothy has a better and more accessible idea. They'll just flip a coin. Flipping a coin is actually a great problem solver. I once helped a lady that worked at Home Depot decide if she should move out of the state or not based on a coin toss. It's a great tool in finding your real feelings about a situation. With the coin landing on tails, Rose... Oh, hello. (laughs) Hello, Coco? Maybe maybe expand on that. I'd like to hear about this person whose life you altered. Anyone that knows my mom knows that she has friends everywhere she goes, including Home Depot, because she's there all the time doing her projects. And she always takes her dog because you can have dogs at Home Depot. And everyone that works there has a different name for the dog. Oh, there's Gizmo. Oh, hi, Spotty. I mean, just like they all have their own name. They've come to parties that my mom has had. Like literally she's gone to Home Depot to hand them an invitation. (laughs) And they've come to house parties. Um, Anyway, so we're there one day. And this woman is just kind of spilling her guts a little, almost like she just didn't have someone to talk to. And she's like, well, my kids are down in, uh, I think it was New Mexico, but I'm up here. But if I stay here, I can do this. But if I go there, I can do that. And my mom's like, well, why don't you just like flip a coin or something? I'm like, oh, yeah. And we, I grab a coin out of her purse and we throw it and she calls it. And we said, okay, so we're like, heads means this, tails means that. We flip it and it said, whatever it came up was, you're moving to New Mexico. And she went, Okay. Like she just needed that. She needed to know she felt okay with it or something. With the coin landing on tails, Rose gets the preferred room. I guess maybe Dorothy's private bathroom doesn't have a bath and it's shower only. I can't imagine any other difference. Feeling bad for winning the preferred room. Relatable. Rose offers to swing by Dorothy's room if she's ever bummed out and they can sing Kumbaya. That's a hard pass from Dorothy. While saying sitting around the campfire singing Kumbaya has become a bit of a I'm not a hippy-dippy type, that's not what the song represents. Going back to its creation around the 1920s, it's believed that Kumbaya comes from Pidgin English, which is kind of like a Cliff Notes version of the language, and it means as a prayer to God, come by here. Historians believe it came from the people of the South Carolina and Georgia coasts as a song for those that needed God's protection, especially during Jim Crow days. While I agree with Dorothy, I'm not one for the camp counselor vibe, I do appreciate the song's earnest pleas for help. Luckily, the song's message is clear, understood, respected, and revered. So here's a clip from Alvin and the Chipmunks Chipwrecked. Now that the rooms are settled, the ladies all work together to take Dorothy's things to her room. In doing so, Rose knocks over a tote vase that was on the edge of the side table, a sign of things and vase breakings to come. Rose is immediately apologetic and offers to replace it. Sadly, it was a gift to Blanche from her grandmother, as she was dying, so it can't be replaced. Blanche handles the break well, just guilting Rose by describing how sick and loved her grandma was. Desperate to make things better, Rose asks them to dinner at her favorite restaurant, and it'll be her treat. And treat it is as she has invited the girls to Dairy Queen, home of the best seasoned fries, dilly bars, and of course, blizzards. Mocking the childlike choice Rose has made, Dorothy jokes, Why drive when we can just skip there? 
Also, she said the Blizzard special ends at 5, meaning they're going to go get dinner in the 4 o'clock hour. You know that feeling you get when you're listening to a song in your car and it ends right when you pull into the driveway or your parking spot? Well, pay close attention because you can get that same feeling watching how the transition music perfectly lines up to Dorothy closing the front door. We're back from commercial and back from flashbacks. Joining the ladies in the kitchen, we learn they've been gabbing the night away and it's now 2 a.m., This, of course, has Rose clutching her pearls. She would never stay up this late before living with the girls. Unless the Jerry Lewis telethon was on, of course. You'll never walk alone. Confession time. Buckle up. Sit down. Jerry Lewis was one of my first celebrity crushes, if not the first. I can't remember if it was him or Richard Marks. The 80s and my childhood were weird. Jerry Lewis was famous back in the golden age of Hollywood for being kind of the first Jim Carrey. His physical and facial comedy was over the top and amazing. Lots of weird voices like, hey lady, and tripping over, well, anything. He eventually teamed up with Dean Martin and they became even more popular as Martin and Lewis. With his fame, Jerry started the annual telethon in 1966 where he would raise money for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My best friend growing up struggled with some physical disabilities, so I'm sure seeing someone care about those that were considered different aided in my love for him. I don't often relate to Rose, but staying up to watch the telethon is something we share. From 1966 to the end of the telethon in 2009, Jerry Lewis raised $2.5 billion for the MDA. Side note, I don't know if it holds up, and it's probably super problematic, but I did love Cinderfella as a child, so maybe look that one up and get back to me. Agreeing with Rose, Blanche too claims to have not ever been a night person. Or she didn't used to be for all of, like, maybe 16 years. It wasn't until she realized how much better she looked in moonlight that she became a night owl. It was a spring dance when the moonlight struck her push-up broad cleavage, and she was sold. The band kicking in really sealed the deal. And while Bette Midler has won Grammys, the only one I can find that Dorothy might be referencing here is a comedy album. I'm thinking it's more of a joke that Bette can make anything sound good, just like Blanche's boobies. Laughing through the memories, Rose shares how much she enjoys their time together because they always find ways to have fun and laugh. Lest we forget Rose, the day after the big move-in, the gals all decided to get groceries together, which seems like maybe not the best idea five minutes into knowing someone, but okay. While wandering the aisles, Rose, in her light blue businesswoman special outfit, shares how the sausage case brought back so many fond memories— Dorothy in her white t-shirt and brown cover agrees. Oh yes, so many sausage memories. Kind of a missed opportunity for a weird rose comment or a stand burn from Dorothy, but no one's perfect. Blanche catches up to them wearing a yellow and fuchsia version of the outfit she wore to the grocery store the day before. Red flag alert. While we know everything works out in the end, they could have easily imploded everything with this little plan. They went grocery shopping not only together at the same time, but like together, as in they were going to equally split the cost of everything. Hey guys, don't do that. That's a recipe for disaster. I haven't had much experience with roommates, but this I would never do, ever. With a partner in a relationship where that would be appropriate, yes. Strangers, no. 
That's why Dorothy is so reasonably upset when Blanche brings over what appears to be a six-pack of smoked oysters at four bucks a can. That's why Dorothy is so reasonably upset when Blanche brings over what appears to be a six-pack of smoked oysters at four bucks a can. They're still about that price nowadays, although I can't vouch for quality. Blanche insists that they're a cupboard staple and she simply must have them. But the other gals aren't keen on splitting $16 or so for something they don't want any part of. Splitting the cost of a shared thing like milk or toilet paper, sure, but not your aphrodisiac, Blanche. While a certain acid found in some shellfish, like oysters, have been found to sexually stimulate rats, there is no proof that oysters are in fact an aphrodisiac. As for the bottle of cold duck, that's a brand of wine. Studies have shown that people, especially women, who consume red wine regularly report more fulfilled sex lives. But is that because there's something in the wine or because the wine lowers your inhibitions? Upon hearing Blanche's torrid tale of bringing a non-performing man to life via the oysters, Dorothy sort of coyly backs herself up to the basket of oysters and slips another package into the cart. Suddenly, they don't seem so expensive. Over in the produce section, Blanche is hovering over the melons when a clerk walks by and compliments her on her cantaloupes. Assuming he means her breasts, she accepts the compliment happily. Fun fact, while we don't see his face, we have seen the clerk before. He's played by none other than the waiter from the flu episode, Dom Herrera. While still at the cantaloupes, the ladies start one of the greatest disagreements that continues to this day. How do you check if a cantaloupe is ripe or not? As a very picky eater, cantaloupe is not my jam, but I have heard most of these methods, so let's find out which one really works best. As ridiculous as Rose's farm method is, using a knife to actually cut into the melon and taste it before throwing it back into the pile with a no, it's also the most accurate. I mean, cutting the melon up to see the inside is a surefire way to see if it's ripe, although it's definitely not the most sanitary for any involved parties. Blanche's method isn't necessarily wrong, it just isn't the most accurate, and a thump is more of an indicator of ripeness for a watermelon. That's right, Dorothy's the winner. If you smell at the stem hole, there should be a musky, sweet smell. If there's no smell, it still needs time. Also, if the little belly button piece comes off easily, it's good to go. If it's a struggle, put it down. Embarrassed and horrified at Rose's behavior, Blanche watches for the clerk as Dorothy just turns away. Finally, at the checkout, Blanche turns into My Grand Mirror, an honor usually only reserved for Dorothy, as she buys every sleazy tabloid on the rack. Of course, to stay on top of the world events, she needs a People magazine. As the cashier rings up their items, Rose corrects the cost of some of their produce, adding an extra 30 cents a pound to the peaches. Blanche's tone of annoyance as she asks Rose if she's going for a scout badge is quite the tell, but Rose pushes back. Sorry you don't know anything about honesty, Blanche. Quite the holier-than-thou for having moved into that woman's house yesterday. Okay, maybe she wasn't calling Blanche an outright liar, but just implying her dishonesty due to her purchase of petite pantyhose, a size jokingly too small according to Rose, who is kind of body shaming right now. Lifting a large pork loin into the air, Blanche threatens to use it against Rose before Dorothy rips it from her hands. It's a $16 piece of meat, and she will have no part of it, so she's out of the split. But Blanche counters, holding up a no less than four foot long, four inch in diameter pepperoni. She says she won't go in on that meat then. 
Offended, Dorothy grabs the police officer nightstick-inspired piece of meat out of Blanche's hands while clarifying that it's pepperoni. With one of the most quotable quotes from Blanche, she shoots back with a stern yet almost whispered, It's obnoxious. Once again, Rose corrects the cashier to get an accurate non-sale price. A flustered Dorothy begs her to save her skills for one of my other favorite shows, The Price is Right, the iconic game show where contestants win prizes based off their knowledge of grocery prices. Rose is just trying to do what's right, though. Blanche is desperate for them to be quiet as she frequents the store for food and snacks, a.k.a. men, and Dorothy, whipping her meat stick on the counter, is over all of it. It's decided they're going to do what they should have done from the beginning, get their own groceries. Coming home from the store, the noise acting is top tier. Doors are slamming, grocery bags are crinkling, jars hitting counters. It's like aggressive ASMR. And it's clear the ladies are still all mad with one another. In trying to put some milk away, Blanche encounters something I've only ever heard of on this show. Dorothy has put her Raisin Bran cereal in the fridge. Like, on purpose. Not like me when I've eaten something late at night, like a bag of chips, and I can't find them until I check the freezer the next day. No, this was, like, not only intended, but she defends it. I mean, a huge box of cereal in the fridge? No, there's no room, rhyme, or reason. And sorry, Dorothy, raisins are meant to be on the shelf, so refrigerated or not, they don't last longer. I can't find anything specific about Raisin Bran cereal, but it's still a no from me, dog. Making wonderful points as to why this is an abomination is Blanche, arguing that if they lasted longer in the fridge, it would say, store in the fridge. She actually says, in the refrigerator. She's got a nice little roll on those R's. Rose chimes in with her opinion. You put it in a glass container to keep it fresh and to see if they cheated you out of raisins. This reminds me of a friend's husband who got, I think it was a Huckleberry Pie Tillamook ice cream. They had ads out at the time and they literally cut the ice cream container in half and turned it to be like, oh my God. And he had like no mixings in it. And he literally sent a picture to Tillamook and they sent him... I think like a reimbursement and a coupon for a free one or something. He's like, this is an outrage. I have no pie pieces. <laughs> with Blanche now dealing with a headache from all of the fighting and Rose's lip missing from being mad and Dorothy's defiant cereal storage, they have all come to the same conclusion. This living situation just isn't going to work. To prove it, Rose starts a St. Olaf story about the Great Herring War. There were two different families that controlled the herring-bearing waters of Norway, and they had different opinions as to what to do with the fish, to pickle or to circus. She's not kidding about the herring circus being smaller than SeaWorld. Herrings only grow to an average of 8 to 12 inches long. So not SeaWorld and not Flea Circus, somewhere fishy in the middle. A flea circus was an act created in the 1800s in Italy where small circus-like contraptions were built and, using two methods, fleas or devices, they were made to look like a miniature circus was going on. Some vaudevillian types used magnets and gears to make things move and look like tiny fleas were jumping around, but they weren't actually. But there were many circuses that did use actual fleas. You simply must YouTube it. Because fleas are so strong for their size, when a circus owner would pick through the fleas, he would find the biggest and jumpiest and tie a string or wire around them. 
since they only live a few months, the circus was their life. I'm not sure if strings would be involved when it came to the herrings, though. Cracking herself up, Dorothy asks if there was ever a herring shot out of a cannon, a classic circus move. They did, but it was shot into a tree, scaring all the other fish into not wanting to do it. Although once the story was dissected even just a little, it was clear that Rose's grandfather, who told her about the herring circus, was maybe not the best source for family history. Something I loved about this moment, and Coco, you and I discussed it after watching, is that unlike so many sitcoms where something really, really funny either happens or is said and the whole crew of the cast just kind of move on with it, but we laugh at it, so often in Golden Girls, they recognize how funny a moment is and they actually let the actors laugh through it, which I think led to moments like this where you kind of can't tell if it's a mix of acting or real laughter in that moment. Sitting around, nearly in tears from laughing so much, the girls realize there might be enough humor and fun in their relationship that they could make it work. Deciding to push forward with living together, they get back to putting their groceries away. That's when Blanche spots the chocolate cheesecake Rose is trying to put into the freezer. That seals it. They're all going to get along just fine. Fun fact, B. Arthur, like me, hated cheesecake. Yet there she is, ever the committed actor, finishing the bite on her fork as we transport back to the present as the girls acknowledge how far they've come in their friendship. Realizing it's only gotten later into the night, they decide it's time to go to bed. Then, Queen Sophia, knowing the girls are awake and scared from having watched Psycho, bursts into the kitchen, wielding a huge knife and screaming. The girls leap from the table and huddle into each other, terrified. Sophia can hardly keep from laughing as Dorothy tells her that wasn't funny. Oh, please. It was hilarious, and when she did it at the home, she was considered a miracle worker as she got a wheelchair-bound man to walk. Waving the knife once more, she hollers, sweet dreams, before making her leave. We only get Sophia in that one scene, but my goodness, it's a good one. There's almost nothing on this earth more fun than scaring someone that you live with (laughs) very badly. (laughs) To make them think for a moment that this is it. Their life is about to end. Yes, they're about to be attacked by some sort of creature in the hallway or behind the couch. It's true, and if you do it the right way, it's great. There's nothing like doing that sort of scare and being scared in that way. Yeah. Because you're terrified, and at the same, the exact moment, you also recognize it's a loved one. Right. And it's hilarious. Oh, my God. (laughs) Nothing better. And that was one of the – that was great, too. What a funny moment, and it's great to see her go big like that. Yeah, the arms are huge. And the cackle and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And and I loved how – just how big that knife looked in her little hand. Oh, my gosh. So funny. It's probably only like a – like eight inch blade, but it looks, but like, it looks like, like two feet long because yeah. she's so little. So funny. But I, I love that because, yeah, it's like she knows they're scared from Psycho and the knife is very Psycho, you know, obviously inspired from that. And just like who knows how long she'd been standing out there listening to them talk about stuff and then to just be like, eh, I'm going to go burst in there. They were like way older, but for her to still want to do that. Oh, to yeah. To still want to scare her kid. And their and her friends, just like they're having a sleepover or something. Yes. It's just so cute. That's like if I was a parent, I would definitely scare my kids when they're having sleepovers. It'd be so fun. Scream. 
Scream had just come out in 96. And because my dad worked in movie rental business, we got a screener. So that was like that to me is the foundational film of horror movies for me. That's when I first got into real horror and was like, yes, I love this. And I was super into it. And I was going to have a I think a Halloween party and have some just a couple girlfriends over for a slumber party and we're in the living room watching Scream and my mom's just like my parents are in their room you know they're letting us have the house and my mom comes walking out and is like oh what's going just kind of nonchalant and then the phone rings and someone starts messing with us the phone's ringing it's hanging up phone's ringing hanging up then it's like what door are we at and we're like oh my god someone's messing with us and then they're like check the backyard or something and with how the house was, the living room was right up to the, the back doors. And so we go and we open the shades and turn on the light. And there's my friend Adam tied to a chair, just like the boyfriend mm -hmm. in the opening scene. Yeah, Steve, Steve, the football player. And he's tied to a rope or tied to a chair with rope and is like, oh, and then we're screaming, you know, we're all having, because we recognize, we're like, you guys, and we're a scream, but it's so scary. And then I get super mad, so I run outside, and he tries to run away, and I grab the rope, and it catches him wrong, and it actually gave him a rope burn across his neck, and I felt so bad. He might still have a scar from it, but he was such a good team player. And then the next year, it was either my birthday or Halloween, and having another couple friends over and my mom had called the guys up again and they actually got into our swimming pool above ground pool that so it had to be Halloween because of the time of year so it hadn't been touched for months and it was all green and disgusting <laughs> and they're like go outside and check and we're like no you guys are stupid and we're like there's nothing even here and then he leapt out of the algae filled disgusting pool and scared the life out of us and it was Swamp amazing thing. oh that's so good it was so fun so like <laughs> kind of same vibe where my mom didn't do it directly but she arranged for it shaken and now wide awake the girls assume the position at the table and get back to eating the cheesecake it's not like they're going to be going to bed anytime soon anyway especially since they've killed a package of oreos one more option for topping the dessert whipped cream and blanche is happy to go get it from her room Upon hearing that that's where it is, the ladies decide they're good and they can eat the cake without any extra frills. Since the start of the first quarantine, we've all seen the meme saying when someone is feeling anxious, they'll rewatch a show or movie because they know the outcome, so it's comforting. And according to Psychology Today, that is a factual meme. Nostalgia and reminiscing has been more common since COVID began, and for good reason. When feeling emotions like sadness, or in this episode's case, fear, looking back might be helpful in moving forward. If feeling lonely, sad, or scared, you might find yourself watching old shows or even subconsciously thinking of old, fond memories. In doing so, you're actually revisiting the feelings you had about yourself at the time, not one specific moment. So when the ladies are unable to sleep, it's not only normal but healthy that they're looking back on a time when they were all bonding and overcoming obstacles, which then led to laughter. Even though they're all talking about specific moments, what they're really doing is self-soothing with reminding themselves of how they felt about each other and the exciting opportunities that lay ahead of them in the new chapter of their life of living together. Just revisiting those times where you remember feeling hopeful, excited, happy, or other positive emotions can help change how you're feeling in the present. If you've been feeling lonely, you may be watching the girls not only because they feel like family, but because you grew up watching it with people you loved, and now you're borrowing the joy and company from that time to make up for what's lacking right now. 
So keep the memories flowing, find your happiness, and most importantly, keep Sophia away from the knives. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when Coco and I do our own end of the season clip show with a very special episode of Always Be My Sisters. It'll be called Always Be My Clip Show. Perfect. She saw the love bloom between that weird child, <laughs> that that very mm, weak-looking child. She had to let him go. That cat didn't look cool either, by the way. That did not look like a fun cat. <laughs> it was probably sedated. It was the 80s. They're like, you got to chill out, cat. Hey, weren't we all? <laughs> <They're> like... <laughs> If any listeners want to draw an interpretation of the <laughs> of the roommates co-flossing, co-bathing, please do. With a splash of shining vibe. Yeah. Illustrate that for us. Take a picture. Whatever you want to do to show us that. It'll be really fun. Oh, my God. No real flossing involved, though. Please. Coco, what was it you said Sophia's dress looked like? A kitchen watch. <laughs> bo bo <laughs> A kitchen watch. Oh, <laughs> no. And I always found that to be so relatable. And she's a step teacher and or step teacher. <laughs> <laughs> like a step parent, but a substitute teacher. I said step teacher. <laughs> You're not, You're not my, my real, real teacher. teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Diarrhea. <laughs> Mario jumping on <laughs> plugs. <laughs> <laughs> if someone's coming down the hall and you're coming down the hall and they don't know you're coming down the uh, hall, go ahead and freeze and just go ahead and stick against that wall. <laughs> and then when they turn, just go, <laughs> and they'll they'll die. And it's pretty great. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister